Welcome to Volume Up, Uncovering Asia, brought to you by St. James's Place in Asia. Tony Seeley was born in London in 1959 with an English mother and father from Barbados. He moved to Wall's End in the northeast of England, aged eight, and attended the iconic Wall's End Boys Club. In 1977, he embarked on a professional football career that would see him make over 300 professional appearances, scoring over 100 goals in his career and ending up in Hong Kong, where he lives today. My name is Neil Jensen, and this is the St. James's Place Asia podcast for our new series, Volume Up, Uncovering Asia, with today's guest, Tony Seeley. To our new listeners out there, this series is all about uncovering interesting stories and travels from clients, contacts, and business partners across the St. James's Place Network in Asia. Hope you enjoy it. Tony, welcome. Hi, Neil. Thanks for the invite, and uh, thanks for St. James's uh, giving me this uh, opportunity to talk about myself, which you'll find out in the next 20 minutes I love to do. So, Tony, let's get on to uh, a little bit of childhood, first of all. Uh, northeast of England, Wall's End, from the posh part or the not posh part? Well, um, I didn't realise what posh and uh, let's call it not so posh was in those days, but I soon learned as I got a little older that there were uh, parts of the northeast, as in life, that aren't as um, particularly uh, a little more unforgiving than others. Um, uh, let's say that the northeast was a, was an interesting place, being one of the only uh, person of colour, I can say that now, but in my day they used to use terms like coloured and other um, embarrassing uh, terminologies because at that particular juncture, Britain was you know, still used to the old colonial days and uh, people who were of a mixed race, um, my father's black and my mother's white, uh, were a little uncomfortable to describe what I was. So um, I was stuck in the middle a little bit, but I was fortunate enough that mum and dad weren't politically correct in those days. And basically I got a clip around the ear all for anything that I did rather than uh, being black or white. Uh, my mum, like most um, uh, parents, uh, ruled the roost. Dad did his bit, came from the uh, Barbados uh, as an immigrant and uh, simulating his, his job and in his eyes was to work as hard as he could in Great Britain was, and grateful to be in Britain as a, as a black British person. First generation, first wave. Uh, mum from Yorkshire was a Yorkshire lass who basically was a little naive and um, paired in some respects for falling in love with dad because she was disowned at 17, 18 when she had um, our good selves at a very tender age. And um, it was a difficult thing for her parents to, uh, to digest at that time. But that moving into the Northeast, uh, without digressing, we as a family were a bit unique. We were the only uh, black family in the area. We moved uh, to a place called North Shields, which is particularly um, undaunting. Uh, we moved to the posher part of Wall's End, uh, where I more or less uh, had most of my formal schooling. Um, and I remember, you know, around about that time, we didn't really want to get into some of the political issues, uh, Neil, but um, when you when you have the likes of Love Thy Neighbour and Death to Us Part and the Black and White Minstrels on, you can see some of the challenges that, that you had at school and other areas that are simulating into, you know, into uh, the social um, well-being of, of, of the Northeast. So we're going to touch on Walls End Boys Club a little bit later, but football, obviously, um, through the Boys Club, uh, changed your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're sitting here now a good few years later, and I didn't realise at the time that um, I suppose that the Boys Club was going to be the centre of my universe when I got to about 11, 12 years old. Um, I, I wasn't aware what a good footballer I was. And, 
being in the northeast, I didn't realise what it meant to be a good footballer. So a lot of the challenges that I had at school actually evaporated once I played for the football team. I was a good athlete as well. Um, I was always able to take whatever you would call racism or stick or a funny remark with a pinch of salt. Uh, and if I couldn't flick it off with a pinch of salt, I normally had a row about it and came up winning nine times out of ten. Um, as I said, in the northeast and probably up north and anywhere where it's a little tough, you talk with your hands or you walk away. So I was fortunate enough to uh, to go to North Shield and I was at a boxing and did judo, judo as well. But uh, the boys club did change my life, Neil, because it was the... Uh, it was the sort of place that you would go to in the evenings and you know there weren't many things to do and as it says in, in its sort of like mission statement it's there for the community for kids and families to um, generate to a club a clubhouse where you can interact after work and you can socialize and the boys club i didn't realize at the time had this massive desire to be one of the best football uh, clubs in, in the northeast as well as the best social clubs so i ended up spending most of my post-school evenings because in my grade we didn't get much homework so most of my time was spent basically uh, in the boys club on uh, as much time as possible. Are there household names that people would know from your era through the boys club your time? Well the, the, the alumni is quite impressive uh, the ones that jump out during my era were, were a player called Ray Hankin who went to Leeds United a formidable centre forward uh, ones closer to home not so famous but, but uh, I have you know wanted to follow was Mick Tate but the ones that everybody will, will gravitate to are Peter Beardsley, Alan Shearer and Steve Bruce and of late Michael Carrick. That's the calibre of individual that this club has been um, uh, churning out uh, professional footballers and that is five names or seven names out of over 60 professional footballers over the last 25-30 years that they've produced um, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about them producing them with an agenda to be a academy. This is literally dads and lads gravitating into coaches and gravitating into a philosophy and way of playing. And I didn't know all these words like philosophy and, and, and uh, all the sort of buzzwords that you use now and again. But the bottom line was, is you turned up, you worked hard, you played hard, you were treated with respect. And one of the reasons why I loved the club, I, I rarely had any racism at the club. I never felt any different. The coaches, Peter Kirkley's still there. He's he's now the vice president, and it's Kirkley Park that they've named after him, quite right. And I'll throw my friend in there. Uh, we'll talk about Steve Dale a bit later on. But as a as a, a nine to sixteen year old, I wasn't aware of some of the values that they were putting into into my um, DNA, which are in there now. And from the boys' club, you went to Southampton. Well, that was an interesting one because uh, not many people know this, and they'll know this now, is that. Um, I ended up scoring over 220 goals in my last year um, as uh, at Wolves End Boys Club. And people will say, well, how did you do that? Um, well, one, a lot of the teams weren't very good. <laughs> Secondly, the team I played for was very, very good. And thirdly, I played for four teams. Sometimes I played three games at the weekend. So when you look at the kids today, morning and growing about being tired, I used to play for the school in the morning at nine. Saturday afternoon, I'd have a game of the under-16s. Then on Sunday at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, we'd play for the under-17s. And then every now and again, you'd be substitute for the under-18s. Now, I didn't score too many goals for the latter two because, quite frankly, as a 16-year-old going into that age group was massive. But that allowed me and the likes of Southampton and other teams to come and see you playing what you would call against men when you were still 15 and a half, 16 and developing. To the extent that Laurie McManamy came to our house with his family and sat in the front room with my mum and dad and basically 
promised that he would look after me and make sure that every opportunity that I was available, uh, that was available at Southampton would be given to me because he recognised that it was a massive thing for uh, a black kid from the northeast to go to Southampton to leave home. It was a nine hour journey in those days. We never got off the train. So, I mean, I, I used to love it in the summer. We used to go there. I mean, you know, the, leaving the northeast in any capacity. Not that I'd never loved the northeast in an emotional sense, it was always home, but I did realise there were pastures green. And getting on the train to Southampton and having sweets and chocolate and all the goodies that got down there and being treated like, like a king when you got to Southampton was fantastic. So, when you were at Southampton, 1979, League Cup final, Tony Seeley, 19 years old, came on as substitute. Tell me a little bit about that day, because there's one or two stories there. You were playing Nottingham Forest. Brian Clough was the manager of Nottingham Forest, obviously iconic manager. Um, I've read stories like Freddie Starr was on the team boss and led the team out. And I'm thinking now, you know, you can imagine 100,000 people in Wembley Stadium. It just wouldn't happen. Is it true? It's, it's a, you know, what, uh, Neil, it's, you, you tend to forget. And I tell you what, before I get into that one, is that if you can imagine from, from um, 1976 to 1979, Southampton won the FA Cup in 1976. So I went there in the first year and, and was witnessed and a part of an FA Cup final. And in, and in those days and now, uh, Southampton decided to take the whole staff to Wembley from the groundsman to the tea lady, and they said, we would never get there again, um, and we might never get there again, so they enjoyed the day. So, first of all, I've gone to 1976, and I've got the FA Cup in the changing rooms, I'm on the bus, et cetera, et cetera. Three years later, I'm in an FA Cup final at the age of 19, and for some reason, I thought this was gonna happen all the time. Um, I thought, well, that's, you know, this is good, I, and I didn't take much notice of the day. I remember coming out at, uh, at Wembley and looking round, and obviously the, the, the cliche with the, you know, the hairs at the back of your neck, et cetera, et cetera. But the story that you're referring to is actually spot on. Lauren McMenemy recognised that, that getting to Wembley from 1976, part of the process is relaxing the team. So he decided to surprise us on the morning off. <laughs> and Freddie Star got on, got on the bus, <laughs> if you could imagine, doing all these, all these impersonations. In fact, this is a household comedian <laughs> back in the 70s, early 80s. Freddie Star ain't my hamster, all of that. <laughs> exactly. On the bus, going to a cup final where the nation is waiting. So he's, he's on the bus and he's gone through his repertoire. And as we're coming up to the Twin Towers, he decides to do the team talk as Norman Wisdom. So he was going through player by player, you know, uh, and quite frankly, it was hilarious. But we got beat on the day. The day was great. And, and obviously it's a, a part of, of a, a fantastic story for me. But one thing I did learn about football and about showbiz is that on the way back, somebody said, well, where's Freddie? He's actually gone in the forest bus. There's their show business for you and the fickleness of the entertainment world. Lovely. Um, so moving on from Southampton, obviously your uh, your love affair with uh, Terry Venables, of course, uh, he went on to be um, manager of Barcelona and England, but he um, he signed you on more than one occasion, didn't he? Yes, um, I didn't realise. Again, it's funny the story. I wonder, I always wondered why Southampton. I got in a cup. I was in the cup final uh, squad, and I was a bit naive in the old days, and. Um, I actually thought, believe it or not, that when you sign for a club, you stay with them for the rest of your life. And I used to sit in uh, when Southampton were playing at home with a scarf on. And when they scored, I jumped up and down. And two of the lads were like, what are you doing? 
I said, we won three one. He went, but you're not going to play now because each time they win, you're not going to get in the team. So I went, ah, oh, that's a good point actually. So you know, you got. I was a little bit romanticised about the whole thing. So I got to the League Cup final. I thought I had another three years ready to sign, and um, out of the blue, um, Matt Menemy said, "We've had an offer for you. Um, get yourself on the train up to London, and and there you are." I was sold to to Palace for fifty grand. But before I signed for Palace, Palace, uh, Southampton had a caveat that I could go back because actually Palace were buying me for their running from the second division, the old second division. They were second in the old um, second division and wanted to ensure that they had 15 games left or 12 games left. And they wanted a bit of cover and they weren't sure whether or not the squad that they had at the time was going to be strong enough. And they were obviously covering themselves for injuries. So I remember getting down to Mitchum um, in the afternoon. I'd, um, I'd, I'd signed preliminary, but um, there was still a little caveat that allowed me to go back to Southampton. I remember, and I didn't realise at the time what they were doing, that after training, um, uh, Terry and uh, Alan Harris, who was the assistant coach, kept out three, three, three defenders and one left back. And uh, at that time, I was sort of like a centre forward come right, right wing, wing back. I could play on either side. And I remember um, after training, they threw the ball at me on the wing and they said, uh, just go at the full back, get a crossing and off you go. Cut a long story short, after playing against this full back uh, for about 10 minutes, getting to the byline, let's say seven out of 10 times, the pair of them looked at each other and said, we'll have him all day, forget the caveat. Afterwards, I didn't realise it was Kenny Sampson, who was, the, who was the left back. So all the time, Terry being Terry was always looking and thinking and planning and scheming. Um, and he'd taken a lot of his ideas and his mantra and his mentor was Ma the great Malcolm Allison. And the pair of them were, were, were the, the brains of what the English game were at the time. So to, to be anywhere near Terry for six or seven years, uh, and you look at the other managers that I had, when you go down, down the list from Steve Perriman to Jerry Francis, to Keith Birkinshaw, um, and you're looking at some of the minds in the game and the players that were doing around in terms of the managerial sense. When I got into the job that I've got now, you don't realise that you've actually taken some of their philosophies and some of their structure and how they plan and how they talk to people in groups, getting the team together. But Terry was, was a very, very clever man. Um, he was very engaging, very, very friendly, but he had, he had, he had me uh, like a child to a father figure until I got to about 21 uh, and I went to QPR. And this was the year, first year I was there. And um, I fell out with him uh, because I actually dared to answer back. In those days, you still had a bit of discipline. Not like these days, the players will call their agent and they will, you know, go through the newspapers and do some sort of a story to get away. But I'd done something that, that wasn't acceptable to Terry, which was actually challenge his decision of why I wasn't playing, whatever. And um, I <laughs> stupidly said, I want to transfer. And it just happened to be the year that um, QPR got to the FA Cup final. So I remember sitting at Wembley in the Tottenham end, taking the philosophy that I said before, I hope Tottenham beat him uh, because next year he's going to look for some, some, some of the players to come in there and uh, shake the squad up. So um, Terry was a terrific manager. I had some great times with him, but um, I learned the hard way to when to be a little more diplomatic and when to uh, speak your mind. So just a few more things on uh, your UK career. 1985, uh, Leicester City in the top flight. Am I right in thinking that you replaced Gary Lineker? Well, this is how clever Gordon Milne was. He actually, he 
got my struck my ego and said that um, you know some we've been watching you for a while quite a while and we've noticed that you score one goal in every three games so um and we actually think you've got the same attributes as gary when he was the, a raw now gary had just gone to everton at yeah, this point gone to for how much eight hundred thousand nine hundred thousand they nicked yeah. me for 75 i think and as you can see the two careers <laughs> went in totally <laughs> different directions <laughs> and uh but no the other thing was neil is that i was thinking about about when you when we touched on this before is that one of the reasons i'd left um, um Fulham because it was before Fulham because also one of my idols was um, Malcolm McDonald signing at Fulham and uh, one of the reasons why I went there is that, is that when you have a centre forward who's the manager and all that Fulham were at that time they had Paul Parker, Tony Gale, uh, Ray Houghton and nine of that team went on to play as internationals or Dean Coney, Leroy Rossini. This was the Fulham squad at that time so I went there and that was a lovely little team to play for but I digress is that um, when I'd, um, I'd left Fulham because I'd had a bit of a run-in with them, I'd, I'd had a bad injury, and uh, quite frankly, I was getting a little, a little stale there, and, and the chance, quite frankly, to go back to the first division, the old Premier League. As a professional footballer, for me, the money wasn't important, the move wasn't important. It was, it was a case at 25-26 to have another go, because I left QPR to go to Fulham when they were in the first division. And I went there really for financial re reasons, if you can know what I mean. I turned the car left instead of right. I was going to QPR. It was, it was, it was a good financial move, a nice little club. I dropped down from the first instead of fighting for my place at QPR. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to stay at Fulham and just nick the money, for want of a better expression. Um, I had a nice contract. I had a nice life of scoring goals. I really genuinely wanted to go up and see if I could still have it in me. And Leicester was a fantastic club, by the way. They were miles ahead of everybody else. They had the best training ground in the country. Uh, lovely, Filbert Street was lovely. And Gordon Mill was a gentleman, old, old, old school. A bit like Laurie McNamee, you know, you please sir, no sir. You had your respect, you had your boundaries. You, you had all the, all the, the what I, I would call the, the attributes to a club. Leicester, unfortunately for me, uh, worked, but didn't work because like anything, you have to throw yourself into it. And I still had the family in, 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 in London. So I wasn't commuting, but we had, we had a rented house in, in Leicester and we had our own house in London. And I couldn't actually wait to get in the car and get down, back down to, to Leicester to see my wife and, and, and baby son. And the second one was on the way. So um, it worked, but it didn't work. I had a good time there, but uh, Leicester, I've got a soft spot for them, but... Um, so jumping to 1987, Sporting Lisbon in Portugal, there weren't many players went to Portugal and I can't actually think of that many British players that have been to Portugal since. Now you scored in a in a derby with Benfica in front of over 100,000 people. What was that like? Scoring against Benfica is like scoring for Newcastle against Sunderland, Arsenal against Tottenham, Rangers against Celtic. What it does, it just takes a massive load of pressure off you because quite frankly, the next 10 games doesn't really matter because you've the mentality was is that you you've scored against the the arch rivals what it did what it did do neil is it just gave me a sense that you can um you know portugal gave me a fantastic opportunity to 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 test myself in a different country test myself in different systems a different way of playing and quite frankly it was it, ridiculous that i'd been at leicester and, and trying to get you know get off the bench and, and, and start again to being having people at your car, autographs going into restaurants, being treated like a superstar. 
And I had a young family, Jack, my youngest boy, our youngest boy was 12 weeks old, I remember. Michelle being a young wife and, and, and uh, just got on with it and, and Michael was three and a half. So we, we were living the, living the, not the dream, but it was a massive um, surprise, a lovely surprise. Keith Burtonshaw, a Geordie as well, another Northeast lad, got on really well with him and he allowed me to drive the changing room for him because I was able to articulate what he wanted, not in, in, port, in Portuguese, but in the training ground and on the pitch. So Portugal was a, was a massive bonus to me at a time in your career where you, you're coming away from Leicester thinking that you might struggle to get a, a quality club and you end up playing in the European Cup Winners' Cup. I think I scored 15 goals uh, from, from the old number 10 in those days, they turned me into a number 10. Um, sorry for those that don't understand the football. Um, and then I also, you know, managed to reinvent myself a little bit in Europe and have a certain amount of interest. I remember going to Italy and playing against Atalanta and my father-in-law and my wife's half Italian uh, came to Atalanta with tears in his eyes because he said, for the first time I can go to the shop and say, my son-in-law is a footballer because before he was saying, who's Leicester? What is QPR? What is Fulham? So you get to, um, to Sport Lisbon and all of a sudden he's now a celebrity. So I thank Sport Lisbon for that. And as a, um, a foreign player in Portugal, what were things like in terms of getting paid in those days? Well, it's funny you should say that because I was messing around and, and found an old contract. And um, we did. I had an agent to find me um, sporting, but the agent didn't do the, do the agreement. The sort of money I was on wasn't enough just about paying me, never mind an agent. But to get to your point, it's still fraught with danger because, you know, you've got two contracts. One is in the local language and then you need a lawyer next to you to and then it needs to be translated. I was fortunate enough that Portugal being Sport Lisbon, one of the reasons you go to Sporting is that it's the equivalent of going to Man United. You get paid. Even if things aren't going well, they honour the contract unless you do something against them. Um, and in line with that, Sporting not only was a fantastic club who played in Europe and we were challenging for championships and you were household names, they also paid very well compared to what I was getting in England. That wasn't Fantastic money in those days, but when you're getting after tax, you know, equivalent of you know, two and a half, three thousand pounds a month, and then you've got your bonuses on top of that. For someone like me, that was that was a payday. Um, was that the best that you earned? I think yes. I would say it was because obviously taking into account that they gave us apartments, they gave us first class flights, schooling, all the all the perks that came with it. For Tony Seeley, who had come from Southampton, done Fulham, QPR. I always got, you know, I'm not, I'm not digging myself up. I was always a second striker. Second striker, for those that don't know, a bit like in the office, you go and get things for people and someone will do something else and make the money. Supporting actor. Supporting actor. So what you've got is you've got your Clive Adams, you've got your Stan, Simon Stanwood, you've got your Gary Lineker. What you do is make the room and the space. So when you're looking at a player that's apples for apples, you might be, you might, you know, the, I wasn't a body, but I was that type of player. You were on the last shoulder, you were tenacious, you were aggressive, you made space and you just made, you made the crowd get off their seat with your, with your movement. So in modern day Premier League footballer with all these fantasy leagues and everything, you'd probably feature well on the assist chart. I'd be on the assist, the money that I get and I sit on my backside getting those splinters happily growl until, <laughs> until the cows come home. Uh, okay, so very, very quickly, um, before we get to Asia, Brentford, Swindon Town, Bristol Rovers, Mupa in Finland, then back to Brentford. 
how on earth did you end up in Hong Kong? Okay, I'll do the microwave version. All those clubs represent um, where, where you were and your CV. Um, I was talking about Sport in Lisbon. I was um, on the verge of signing for IFK Gothenburg, which for those who don't know international football are a top Swedish side. So they're the equivalent of Sporting Lisbon in, in Sweden. They've been watching me in, in Europe. And I got a bit blasé. And I thought, I've got IFK Gothenburg. I had one or two others. And what I ended up doing was I put all my eggs in one basket. And we might get to that later on in terms of financing and, and saving. And I, and I put everything into that uh, particular club. And I thought I had that nailed. That didn't happen. And what happened was I ended up scrambling back to the UK with the season maybe three weeks in and not having a, my contract ran out, so I didn't have any money coming in. So I ended up at the likes of Brentford, Bristol Rovers, and um, Nupa, to basically from the age of 29 to 33, to pay the rent. Um, I remember going to Nupa, which is Finland. Finland's a lovely place until the winter comes in. And um, I've discovered vodka in Finland, uh, not to the extent, but that you needed it after training. Um, uh, with Russians singing songs long into the night because it was a, a, a mill town and it was quite depressing uh, but you were sending the money home. Uh, Bristol Rovers um, was a real eye-opener of the of the third division. Jerry Francis took me there um, and we were at Twerton Park. Twerton Park and we used to get changed at a training ground at Cadbury's um, factories. Chocolate. Chocolate factory and you talk about from Sport and Lisbon to Twerton Park with 7,000 people and getting changed in changing rooms that, quite frankly, I went back to Wolves and Boys Club would have been equally as, as good or as bad as. Um, and then you turning into, on the pitch, um, a third division, no disrespects to the league, but you don't, the ball doesn't touch the grass. It's box to box, the ball's in the air, it's smash, grab, second ball, and uh, survival of the fittest. And quite frankly, that knocks the life out of you. Uh, but you do what you have to do. And, and I'm not getting my violins out here because I've had a lovely career and I wouldn't change a thing. But when you start getting um, down that slope, it's hard to get back up. Uh, when you're getting into your 30s, the phone doesn't ring. Um, it becomes a bit of a lonely place and you take what you've got. The upside to all those clubs is that I went there also for a reason, is that they were the best in, in, in class. Brentford, well, I won a third division championship medal with them and also a Bristol Rovers and a Freight Rover appearance which I got injured again, didn't make it there. Um, so you were still in a changing room and in an environment which was around winners, which has always been important to me. So at some point you must have gone home to Michelle and said, we're going to Hong Kong. How was that? <sighs> well, I'm really lucky, Neil, my Michelle, as you brought her up the, the, the queen and sent her up our university and otherwise and she'd be listening to this so I put that one in um, has never questioned my judgment as a as a footballer um, she's always been I would say wise enough to, to, to know that what I'm doing is for us um, and that there will be a happy ending at the end of it 